We are ready for another episode of Swings and Mishes, a very special episode where we have the people who have covered the Marlins in the 2018 season in a forum of sorts. Can't wait to get that started. But before we do, every week, the best way to check the lines in all sports is by downloading the BetQL app. We wouldn't be doing this without them today. Just go to betql.co from your internet browser or just go to the App Store or Google Play, Android, however you have it, it's there. They give you value plays every single day. I've seen a lot of them win in baseball, in uh, college football, in the NFL in the short time that I've used it. The BetQL app is brought to you by the same folks who made the RotoQL app famous for winning tons of money playing daily fantasy sports. Now they're back again, taking their game to the next level. It is the BetQL app. You can see which way the public is betting on every single game. And best of all, you can help make your decisions everything that you're going to wager on just by downloading it and kind of going by what they say i love it again the betql app is free to download upgrade purchases all day long now grab it get your wager on by checking out the betql app it is the secret weapon this football season and the 2018 marlins season is complete but there still is a lot more work to do But before we move forward, we're going to take a look back at the 2018 season. And boy, it was a real interesting one. New ownership, new players, young players being developed, a draft. And to recap everything that happened over the last six months, we're going to bring in our panelists today to discuss the Miami Marlins. And let me introduce them one by one to you. Our first panelist is Joe Frisaro from MLB.com. He's been covering the team for almost two decades, and he'll be with us here to discuss everything that has gone on with the Marlins. Andre Fernandez has also covered baseball in South Florida for many, many years. Recently, he made the transition to the athletic where he covers not only the Marlins, but the dolphins as well, and does some uh, other sports as well. So we're happy to have Andre Fernandez with us. Uh, Also, Wells Dusenberry is with us. He uh, picked up the Marlins beat this season. He covers them for the South Florida sun Sentinel also covers the Florida Panthers. And we're happy to have Wells with us here on this panel to discuss some of the, the issues and things going on with the Marlins. And finally, Daniel Alvarez is with us as well. Daniel uh, covered the Marlins from start to finish just about every single home game this year. He's a sportscaster for EVTV Miami, also the director of L Extra Base and co-host of Global Sports on VDM Radio. Guys, we are going to jump right into this without any pleasantries, and we'll start off with Joe Frasaro from MLB.com. And Joe, I think that the question that most fans want to know now that the season is complete, and that's before we look back, uh, you know, let, let's kind of take a look forward here. And I'll start off the panel with you. Uh, Joe, what do you feel the timeline is for the Marlins fans to see a winner on the major league field in this franchise? Joe, we'll start with you. Yeah, Craig, that's a, that's a tough one to get the crystal ball going. But I, I I think 2020 is kind of a target year that for a lot of reasons, one, the TV contracts up that year. I wouldn't be shocked if by opening day in 19, they got a new uh, TV, uh, an updated revised one with with Fox sports, Florida to be a little bit more competitive and get something in that, in their coffers at 70, 80 million range to get them a lot more competitive uh, from that way. Uh, by 2020, I think we'll see naming rights on the building. So I think there's going to be pressure to, to kind of put a really good product there. And then for, in terms of the inventory of what they have in the organization, uh, that could be about the time some of this young pitching they have, which is kind of the foundation that they, they kind of uh, brought in through trades and some of the guys they had in their own. Um, keep in mind, uh, Sandy Alcantara turned uh, 23, I think, in August. Uh, um, you know, you, you got guys on the come like uh, – uh, Jorge Guzman, you know, you see Pablo Lopez, 22 years old. Um, some of these guys, Nick Neidert's 21. He'll be in the big leagues at some point next year. Um, a lot of guys, 21 to 23, um, a couple a little bit older, that by 2020, they'll have a good two, two and a half years about ready to hit arbitration. And I think that's when the pitching is going to start being a lot more competitive. And I think their, their feeling is get the pitching in order because you can't compete without it, then the position players will follow. So, um, I think 2020, and that when I say compete, contend, I think that's when it could be a fringe wild card team. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see. Uh, Andre Fernandez is with us from The Athletic, and, and Andre, as Joe mentioned, and you know as well, uh, what the Marlins have done is really put the emphasis on a lot of the players that they drafted recently, and, and even some on the players who they traded for. And that's what you got to do when you're starting from scratch, which essentially the Marlins did 
when they are contending again, Andre, do you think the majority of the players in that contention year, whether it's when Joe said in 2020 or after that, 2021, whatever that is, do you think that will come from the major league roster at all? The, the minor league organization where they are now, maybe a combination of both. And I, and I suppose for fans who are listening, who may those players be when the team is contending again? Well, I think mostly it's going to be guys that you'd see run at the minor league level right now. I think a lot of it will be the prospects, you know, like Joe said, that eventually are going to get to the point where they're major league ready or ready to contend. That sort of thing. I mean, there are some guys on the roster right now that you look at, for example, obviously JT Riomuto, if the Marlins do end up uh, getting him for the long term, if they, you know if he accepts the extension that they're probably going to offer him in the offseason, that's a guy you could see being there as like the cornerstone guy behind the plate. Obviously, Brian Anderson's got a big year at third base or, you know, mostly I think he's still going to end up there in the long run, but that's the type of guy that already has proven he could be part of this process. If Lewis Brinson figures it out at the plate, he's another guy that could fit in nicely as far as the guys that are there now. But I'm looking at the Jose Devers playing in the middle infield down the road. The Osiris Johnson's playing in the middle infield down the road. You know, if Real Muto were to go, maybe a Will Banfield in a few years becomes that guy that he wouldn't be at that point for them. So, you know, still a lot of moving parts, but I think predominantly it'll be the guys in the minors that'll be the ones that'll come up and eventually take roles. And obviously between now and then there could be moves in other ways too. Maybe a, a free agent pickup here and there just to blend in in certain spots. But I don't think we've seen yet. About, we've seen a few spots where there could be guys, but I think mostly it's going to be the guys that are going to develop over the next couple of years. Yeah, Andre, it's hard to preach patience when essentially what you're doing is, is sending out the message of, of how valuable you think that these kids in the draft are. Let's not forget the Marlins will pick in the top five again uh, coming up here right. in the 2019 draft. So, it, I mean, setting a timeline is almost impossible, as Joe said, of, of 2019 or 2020. I mean, it could be 20, it could be 21, it could be after that. It just depends on how fast these kids get to the major leagues. And Wells Dusenberry, of course, is with us as well. And Wells has covered the big league team, knows all about the minor league prospects, major league prospects. So I'll ask you, Wells, of, of all the players, and we're kind of alluding to some of them, who do you think that Marlins fans should be most excited about in the organization from top to bottom, Wells? Who is the guy that piques your interest the most? I think it's Sandy Alcantara right now. This is a guy we've seen a little bit this year. He just turned 23. And of all the young pitchers we've seen on the staff, I think he's the guy who has the most electric stuff. I mean, you look at his fastball, he can hit that at 98, 99 um, when he maxed out on there. You know, the sinker, slider, he's seen a little bit more. But, you know, once he came back from injury in the second half of the year when he had that armpit infection, you saw those flashes of the brilliance. You saw the flashes that were really big. When he had the Phillies, he had seven hits or seven innings, no runs. The Mets, seven innings, one run. He had that 10Ks in the season finale. Had another strong one against the Mets in those starts, too. He had a couple that were a little bumpy on there. But, you know, Don Langley talked a lot about, you know, one of the questions was, you know, is he going to be a potential frontline starter? And, you know, you saw some of those glimpses with Sandy Alcantara. And I think that, you know, I like a lot of the pitchers on the staff. I think there's a lot of, you know, optimism with the young guys. But, He's the guy that really wants to be really strong if this team's going to be a big contender coming up soon here. So I would say he's the main guy in the bigs. And then in the minors, um, I like Jose Devers a lot, I think, is a guy to really be intrigued about here. He's only 18 years old and shortstop. He was promoted to high Jupiter at the end of the year, and I think he's another guy. Um, Andre mentioned him earlier on here with his athleticism. He could be that kind of big middle infielder for this team in the future. And, yeah, I mean, a lot of GMs and scouts say that you can't teach the fastball, and Sandy Alcantara has that fastball. So certainly if he can harness the control, that would be a good sign. And there is no doubt, Wells, you're right. Uh, Gary Denbo has talked about Devers over and over again. I know Joe is very high on him as well, and so certainly he'll be a name over the next couple of years to monitor his progress. Our youngest panelist is Daniel Alvarez, who has covered the Marlins now for a couple of seasons a couple uh, covers international baseball as well and has built really strong relationships within the organization and has interviewed players both on the home and road side. And you know, uh, Danny, I'll go to you on this one here because I think it's important for the Marlins to engage the Latin community. We've seen so much discussion about how they're asking the front office executives to uh, learn how to speak Spanish and conversely some of the Latin uh, kids speaking English as well. And so let's go to you on this topic, which is do you think that 
it is important for the team to make an attempt to draft and acquire more Latin players specifically? Or, or Danny, does it not matter and people just want to see a winner at Marlins Park regardless? How do you feel about that? Um, honestly, I think they're doing a pretty good job trying to, to, to engage the, the Latin community. Uh, not on the baseball side, you know, with this um, community 305 or in Spanish, Comunidad 305. Um, but also the product is really important. So, so yes, I, I do believe that it is important for, for the Martins to try to acquire or draft um, Latin players, um, but really good players. I mean, we saw in, in the past that, you know, the attendance, uh, you know, was a little bit higher with Jose on the field. Um, but, I mean, if, if you go really back on time when they had done trail wheelies, I mean, the, the attendance was you know, a little, bit, a little bit higher at that time. But they also, at that time, they had Migi Cabrera and other Latin players that were really good at that time. So I think that, of course, they need Latin players, but good Latin players. I mean, you cannot have a lot of, you know, Latin players on the roster, you know, just for, for having them and not being that talented. So, so if they have a really good winning team um, in the future, Either if, it, either if it's with Latin players or American players, the people will go. But it is important for them to have at least one Latin figure that is, you know, can really make a huge impact on, on the ball club. Yeah, exciting players is something that people want to see on every Major League Baseball team for the purposes of our podcast. As we're recording this, uh, we do not have any final word on the outcome as to whether or not Victor Victor Mesa uh, the Cuban prospect, international prospect, his brother, Sandy Gaston, who are having a workout at Marlins Park. For the purposes of this podcast, we have no clarity at this point other than the fact that they're having that workout. So we will discuss them on a future podcast, given the result. Uh, Andre Fernandez, I'll go back to you. You mentioned Lewis Brinson, and I think that he is uh, was been the he was the face of that franchise this past offseason. Literally every single second, once they made that trade with Christian Yelich, his mug was on TV somewhere. He did a fantastic job promoting the team, promoting the future. But Andre, it just didn't go well for him during the regular season. And it was kind of a microcosm of what we saw with him previously at the big league level. There's been so much back and forth in terms of what to expect with him. There are some people that I talk to that feel that there is another level. There are others that feel, wow, maybe they are just going to be disappointed with the outcome of what Brinson is. We'll get to the other players with Joe Fasaro in this trade with Christian Yelich, but since Yelich is in the postseason here, figured, Andre, we'll go to you on Lewis Brinson. What have you seen this year, and, and, and should fans and, and, and media be optimistic and the organization be optimistic? Where are you at with Brinson at this point? Well, I think basically he gave them a reason to at least be hopeful with what he did in September because you're right, it really started off slow for him, you know, and he finished one point under the Mendoza line because of it. But his best months at the plate were late in June before he got hurt. He hit 267 that month, and then then he got hurt, and then he missed everything until the September call-up time. But even in September, you could start to see the trend, not just in batting average and numbers, but in terms of the hard contact he was making, his approach looked better. He was striking out less by the end of the season. In April, he was striking out 36% of the time he was at the plate. In June, that number dropped to about 21.5%. And then it came up a little bit there at the end of September, but still was much lower on 27. But the point is he's shown some progress that maybe he can turn it around in year two. But you're right, that this is going to be it next season because um, you know it's going to be a big year, not just for him, but for a lot of the Marlins players, because they're going to treat this a little more with a little higher expectation from some of these guys. It's going to be a little less about just developing, and they're going to want to start seeing results from him because he he is obviously an important piece that they hope to get from that Yelich trade. And if he doesn't come out and he's doing the same things he did in April and can't carry this over, it's going to be a big problem. And Joe, just getting started was was the motto there. And so I I think it's really hard to hold young players accountable in the first year of a build or rebuild. And and truth be told, Joe, you you, me, Andre, Wells, Danny, this is the question that we're going to be getting asked the most over the next few weeks, over the next few months, because it's not going to stop. Christian Yelich is in the postseason. He is probably going to win the National League Most Valuable Player. In addition to Brinson, they also uh, received Monte Harrison and Isan Diaz and Jordan Yamamoto in that deal. So uh, at some point, you judge a trade in Major League Baseball. Joe, in your opinion, when is it fair to start 
judging the outcome of this deal? Is it year two, year one, year three? And what does the trade have to accomplish on the Marlins side for it to be worth their while? Yeah, I, I think they got to first identify what, what they have in each of these players. Um, I personally think that they have three everyday position players in Harrison Diaz and Brinson. The question is, is when will all three you know, be in the lineup at the same time? And you could also look at it from this perspective, Craig. If all those guys were to come out and, and be in a draft at some point, Brinson was a first-rounder. Harrison has first-round talent, would have been a first-rounder. And same with Ethan Diaz. So essentially, they got three first-round picks. Uh, Yamamoto, I know his numbers were really good, but he's had some injury situations. Uh, he couldn't bit fish in the fall league. He's not an overly big guy, so I know the numbers uh, look really good. I'm probably less optimistic about him being an everyday, you know, future uh, high rota- rotation guy, but clearly can pitch in a rotation, the back end or the bullpen. But let's stick to the three position players. Uh, real quick on Brinson uh, and kind of illuminate what Andre said. If you look at traditional numbers, there's no way he it. He didn't have a good year. He had a pretty terrible year. And even in September, he hit, what, uh, like 239. But in terms of his hard contact, if he could just put the bat on the ball more regularly. He was a little bit unlucky, too, Craig. Um, I, I did a little, you know, stack cast research on him. And um, balls put in play by him at 95 or higher. His batting average was 344. His his bat was 344, I should say. Balls in play on those type of balls, 95 miles an hour or harder off the bat. Now, that's pretty good, but keep in mind, um, Brian Anderson, the same thing, hit 484 on balls in play at that at that exit velocity and higher. So, Brinson wasn't rewarded a lot for his hard hit balls. Now, let's take it to, to Diaz and, um, and Harrison. For one... Monte probably has had a lot of injuries in the past few years. It probably would have been better served if you're looking strictly for numbers to hit to spend the whole year in A ball. But they challenged him and put him in, in double A for the whole season. And um, and Monte, you know, he also they reworked his swing, his his strikeout weight rate way too high, you know, possibly alarmingly high, uh, at thirty six point something percent. Um, not not a good sign, but he hit 19 homers, and when he hits the ball, this guy is the closest thing they have to Stanton in terms of just a freak of nature athlete. And keep in mind, he's a three-sport athlete who was, you know, behind in a lot of guys. You know, everyone's guys to be multi-sport athletes, but when they are, they they kind of lose something in baseball purity. And and Isan Diaz, another guy, a lot of hard contact. He made it all the way up to AAA. Now, just a little perspective. Diaz is 22 years old. Harrison turned 23 in August. Um, those guys have accomplished the highest levels of, of minor league baseball. For perspective, 2015, Brian Anderson was 23 years old, and it might have been 16. Uh, 23 years old, he played the whole year in the Florida State League with Class A Jupiter. He hit 235 at age 23. And Andy is, I think, going to be a really solid, you know, all-star caliber third baseman. So the, it's, you can't really say when the, when the time limit on a town table on those two guys are. If numbers, if just high batting average numbers was the objective, you could have achieved that by keeping those guys in eight ball, which was where Anderson was just a couple of years ago, and they could have hit 300 in the Florida State League, and, and then what we're saying. But, you know, they, they pushed these guys. They gave them the experience of moving them up, which will help advance their, uh, their progress to the big leagues. Now, very big uh, Monte Harrison will be in the Arizona Fall League for all that follow that Fall League. He's going to be really interesting to follow from Marlins' perspective because if he shows promise, he could come into spring training. I don't expect him to be the big club right away, but, you know, it could show he's knocking on the door in 19 to be in the big league. Also, on the flip side, if he looks overmatched, you know, that raises concerns of how long it's going to take for him to figure things out. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, you circle one name in that trade. Right now, it's Monte Harrison. With all that talent, the Arizona Fall League, Joe's right. We'll have to see if he is the piece. Maybe even the marquee piece ends up being in there. You know, certainly the Marlins would like to get a couple of good players in that deal. And yes, uh, very well to be determined at this point. A year or two from now will be the final judgment on that. Uh, another player, Danny Alvarez, who could be an MVP in the big leagues is JT Realmuto. Who knows it'll be, if it will be with the Marlins or somewhere else. 
It's unclear at this point if he will sign an extension. All indications at this point, even from President Mike Hill, is that they will approach him with one and attempt to sign him. Danny, if you were the Marlins, how would you go about this with Real Muto in the next few months? I agree with Mike Hill. I mean, I will try to sign him because there's, it, it is very difficult to have a catcher you know, in, with those tools, you know, that can run, that can hit, that can hit for power uh, with a great arm who knows how to call the game and he will get better, you know, on, on that. Um, and he's a true leader inside that clubhouse. I mean, when you talk to every single Martins, Martins player, they will talk about that, you know, referring to, to JT. Um, but, of course, it's a tricky situation because it, it is unclear if, it, if, if he will sign or not. Um, I do think that the Martins... They have to try to extend him and build around him. Um, and he's a guy that can hit. So maybe in the future, you know, having a guy like um, Binefield, he can be the catcher and probably probably you move JT either to first base or third base uh, because he he played, you know, in infield when he was in, in high school and he played, has some major experience at first base. Um, and definitely I will try to sign him. But if he does not sign, um, then I will move move up with a with a trade. Um, you know, whenever they get the right offer, they want for him because he's a player that you know can make a huge impact in this organization. Whether he's he's playing for for the Marlins or not, because if you trade JT and you receive a couple of talented players like they receive in the Brewers trade, of course, you know Brinson's numbers were not that good in the big leagues, but he has the talent and the potential to be good in the future. Um, if they receive that type of talent, um, I will definitely you know, be open to, to make a trade with another team. Well, it's a tricky situation, as Danny mentioned, because no one really knows for sure who has the leverage here, Wells. Is it JT Real Muto, who could in two years become a free agent? Is it the Marlins, who could basically say, if you don't sign this, then you're just going to have to wait to become a free agent? I, you know, Wells, it's a really intriguing story because when these contracts are offered, you really don't know how it's going to play out. You also don't know what the Marlins offer is going to look like. Is it going to be a high-end offer that makes him among the highest-paid catchers in the game? Or is it going to be just an offer that gets him paid for a couple of years of uh, outside of, of his arbitration years? How do you think this goes, Wells? What do you think? It is really fascinating, as you mentioned. Of course, you know, that's going to be the big question, how much – are the Marlins going to offer? He made $2.9 million this past year. He's arbitration eligible again. And as you mentioned, he has two years left on that contract. And, you know, when you look at the numbers on here, he's the best catcher in baseball, if you look at a lot of it, I mean, if you look at his war, he had one of 4.8. That was the next lowest was Pius was 3.6 grand all. You look down 2.6 Contreras. I mean, he was significantly, you know, just like one of the best in the big leagues. A catcher, and, you know, as Daniel mentioned, this is a position where, it's hard to find players who can hit like that and have that skill set. And if you look at this team right now, you know, there's no one in the system right now that can jump up and be anywhere near the production level of JT Realmuto. Will Banfield, I mean, he's only 18 years old, and I think the future is probably going to be bright for him, but I don't think we're going to see him for at least three years or so. He's got a lot of progression and development to go on there. And I think if you're the Marlins, you know, you have to make – a good offer for JT on here. And you look at this, especially with one of the things we've talked about is how young this pitching staff is. And I think having that kind of experienced veteran catcher is something that's very important too. And if you go and say, we're going to trade JT Real Mosco right now, you would say the hope is that you get someone back in a trade who could be as good as JT Real Muto. And, you know, you have a guy already in that who is an elite catcher, in baseball and that's the position we said it's hard to find I think they have to try and make a substantive offer on there I don't know what that number or figure would be and you know obviously the Marlins have to do what's right on there but I think you know it's pretty pivotal pivotal if they want to get him back on here and if they want to contend by 2020 on here I don't see who the catcher is going to be on this team otherwise who can really help them get to that point because there's no one else in the system right now, then there's going to be a significant drop-off if you trade them. And, you know, I know there were the talks um, near the trade deadline where I know Victor Robles' name was being thrown around there. I don't know what the offers would be at this point because if, you know, JT says, I don't want to sign an extension here, you would think the Marlins would lose a little bit of leverage at that point. But 
I think if you're in Miami, you have to make a strong push and say, listen, contracts-wise, you know the numbers make that high. And also, um, you know, Mike Hill said um, this week when we were talking that one of the big things is that one of the big draws in his mind was that it's a really talented young pitching staff. And I think you really have got to sell that and think you can be a big part of that future and a big part of this team and be kind of that cornerstone guy. So I think it's important to try and get GT back here for the long term. Yeah, all fair points in, in managing that pitching staff as well. We really don't know what's going to happen. Uh, what what I, I do agree with you here, Wells, I mean, it may not be important to sign JT, but it is definitely important to try. And so regardless of, of how uh, the Marlins want to keep these discussions private, and they will as much as they can, you know that one of us, someone at the end of this, is going to know exactly how much that contract offer was. It's going to come out. Uh, so it would be in their best interest at least to make a very good offer so everyone in South Florida, whether they keep him or trade him, will know, hey, look, they did the best that they possibly can. I do think that they will uh, end up doing that. Uh, Joe, uh, we can move on. Uh, You can touch on that if you like, of course, but we can move on and talk about analytics. It feels like this is the direction that the Marlins have headed in a very big way, and you've been covering this now for a few years, uh, especially over the last couple of years. Uh, Joe, how devoted are the Marlins to uh, implementing analytics at this point? And do you think that a large part of their decisions are analytical-based moving forward? Uh, yeah, just uh, my two cents on real mute up first right before I answer that. I, I think the, the best way to get JT locked up or the, the, from them strategically is you have to show them a path to success, you know, winning. You can't just say, oh, you stick around and by 2023 20, uh, we'll be good. He, it has to be a fast timeline in fairness to him that, hey, look, by 2020, we're going to have a lot more around here uh, for, to make it worthwhile to stay. So I, I think that's a, a point that should be made there. Now, in terms of analytics, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, analytics are, are where they're going. And you know, I think you, you, you did the podcast with, with Dan Greenlee and, and that guy is involved and his staff uh, are involved in literally every decision this organization makes. I mean, they they are looking at every every data piece of data that measures performance and and you know Statcast is is a big part of what MLB.com does and the Statcast technology is is TrackMan. That's uh, where the Statman data comes from. For people who don't know, TrackMan is what all the teams in the league use. So it's from the same database. So if if I'm saying a guy is hitting the ball 105 miles an hour, Stackass says the guy's hitting the ball 105 miles an hour, Trackman's tracking at 105 miles an hour as well. So um, where this is important is, you know, they are being able to make decisions and reads on, on guys like Monte Harrison, on, on Lewis Brinson, um, to kind of measure, are these guys the tools he type players and how they stack up with, um, with the rest of the league. Now, uh, quite simply, uh, the Marlins this year, well, let's just look at, at batting average or, or just hitting, I should say. They were they have way too many ground balls and not enough fly balls. And ground balls in general are not good. Uh, they ranked uh, 29th in the majors and the most ground balls. The only team worse were the Cubs, and we saw how they struggled scoring runs, uh, you know, in the last week of the season in the playoffs. And and uh, the Marlins are 29th in fly balls. So, um, you know, I, I'll just give you just an indication. You know, teams that like seven of the top 10 teams in the playoffs or seven to 10 teams in the playoffs are in the top 10 in, in fly balls, you know, hit the ball in the air and it, it matters. And so when we look at statistical data and what the, the Marlins are looking at, um, they're looking at guys and hopefully trying to find guys who make solid contact and are able to, you know, implement this philosophy, you know, just a, a little quick tutorial. Um, the 10 degree to 25 degree launch angle is kind of considered the line drive zone in major league, the major league baseball average on balls in that um, 10 to 25 degrees is 653. Just that's the major league average. When the Marlins hit the balls in, in that, in that range, 639. So they're right, you know, real close to the major league average and exit below, you know, the guys who hit the ball hard tend to be rewarded. And, you know, the major league average, batting average is 622 on 100 miles an hour higher. The Marlins are hitting 611, you know, just with a team that didn't perform very well offensively. 
you saw when those players hit the ball at that range, they were rewarded. So they lagged so far behind Craig in, in, in this and using this. And I'm just talking the most simplistic of, of the data. And now uh, with Dan Greenlee and company, they're, they're using this. They're looking and seeing that Will Banfield in a showcase and at uh, last October in Jupiter hit the ball 107 mile, miles an hour because it was going on on their backfield with a track man technology of that play. So this is stuff that, that's factoring to all their decisions. They're seeing how hard guys throw, how fast they move on the field. And uh, it's a, a big scouting tool. As well as, I mean, we, we can look at the more traditional numbers crunching, uh, way the runs created plus and, you know, and OBP and, and stuff like that. But uh, where they're really using it, it's assisting scouting. It's, it's, it's involved in the draft. It's involved. Um, you know, in, in all levels of scouting of, in all levels of their minor league. And I'm sure tomorrow, you know, on, when the showcase happens for, for the Mesa brothers, then uh, we're going to see track man data will be, you know, turned on to see how hard the ball's coming off the bat and, and so forth and so forth as they make their decision on, you know, their international signings for doing showcase events at Marlins Park. Yeah, and, and Joe is, uh, has been on front of this two years ago. I remember sitting in the press box with Joe, who travels you know, all over the country with the team, saying you wouldn't believe uh, you know, how far the Marlins are behind in analytics, going back to 2015, I think even 2016. And now here they are making a huge push toward that. And as Joe mentioned, uh, Dan Greenlee uh, behind that. In fact, uh, you know, from what I understand, a lot of the players that have been acquired by the Marlins, both in drafting and in trades or analytical uh, quote-unquote plays, so to speak. So we'll see uh, how that ends up working out. Uh, let's take a quick time out. We'll tell you a little bit about the Miami FSU game on Saturday and how you can get involved in it. We'll be right back. Uh, a couple more questions for our panelists here on Swings and Mishes. We'll get back to our Marlins panelists in just a minute. I know a lot of you are going to be watching the Miami-Florida State game on Saturday. And boy, does BetDSI.com have a great offer for you. Right now, go to BetDSI.com. And here's what you do. You enter promo code MIAMI if you think the Hurricanes are going to win by like two touchdowns. Or you enter the promo code FSU if you think Florida State is going to cover or they're going to win. And here's what BetDSI.com is going to do. If you win your bet, congratulations, you won. But if you lose, you still win. And here's why. If you lose the bet by entering promo code Miami or FSU in the game on Saturday, BetDSI.com is going to credit you back the money you lost. It's a win-win. It's a win-no-lose. It is the best offer that we've had so far this season. Just go to BetDSI.com, get your wagering started very easily, enter promo code Miami or enter promo code FSU for the team that you think is going to win or cover. If you win, congrats. If you lose, they give you your money back. Doesn't get any better than that. BetDSI.com. Go there right now. Start wagering today. And welcome back. We know that 2019 will probably be another challenging year for the Marlins. Andre Fernandez of The Athletic. Here is our next question. I don't think anybody expects the Marlins to win a ton of games next year, but I, I have to say there could be some fear that we're looking at another year like we saw in 2018 and certainly with losing, even though they weren't fantastic players, a couple of big power hitters and Justin Bohr and Derek Dietrich, I, I suppose, can hit 20 or, or come close to it. Uh, Andre, what does the team need to do this offseason to kind of put a competitive team or, or pseudo-competitive team on the field in 2019? What are their biggest needs? Well, I think you, you nailed it right there. I think it's offense and more offense and power and as much as they can get. I mean, you know, Joe touched on it earlier, talking about guys that, you know, can hit higher exit velocities, you know, and elevate the ball better. And I think they're going to be searching that at every different uh, in every different way, both out of their own their own system and from outside. But you know, you look at this team. The one one of the one bright spots was the starting pitching. That's been you know it was a, it was in better shape than it was a year before. They they lowered their ERA from a year before. You saw a lot of young guys make their debut. The pen was obviously a mess throughout the season. A lot of that had to do with inexperience. You know that got worse when they traded Brad Ziegler. We saw Kyle Barraclaw go from great to barely being able to get an out in one season. So he's another question mark going the next year. If he can be, you know, closer to that guy in June than the catastrophe he was late in the summer. But I think, you know, 
they're going to have more money to play with. It's coming off the books now. You know, the Sazawa contract will be gone. The Volquez contract will be gone. You know, you have a little more where they can possibly go out and maybe get, you know, they're not going to go out and get a superstar probably, but they can get someone that can generate some offense to go along with some of these guys like a Brinson that you might see more power from next year. Maybe Brian Anderson, you'll see a little more of a power jump. You know, one guy I know I, I had spoken to Joe recently, even JT Riddles has started to show a little more drive in, in, in the balls he was hitting. It looked, it looked like he could be a little more of a run producer next year, assuming he's healthy. So if they can balance that a little bit, you're not looking at exactly the same year. I mean, even this season, they won 63 games, but a lot of those games that they gave away with big leads that the bullpen just couldn't hang on, if some of that were to happen, you might have seen a little more of a team closer to around the 70-win range. So I don't think it's far-fetched to think that if these things go their way next year and they add a couple of pieces, you, you're not going to yet see a team that's ready to contend but maybe a team that's a little more in that 70-ish range, maybe even 75 if things break well. But the biggest thing is to continue on the track where they've been going, you know, add a few pieces to complement the young guys, and I think they can progress next year. Yeah, and, and Wells, the, uh, the pitching is going to be the thing that's going to have to carry them, ironically, in 2019, because those guys are kind of already said earlier in the podcast, you mentioned Sandy Alcantara, and I think it's fair to make the assumption that the Marlins are planning on giving him 25, 30 starts at least in 2019 are there any other pitchers that you see penciled in to this rotation and Andre did mention the bullpen I'd, I'd hate to see them go out and spend a ton of money ton of money on the bullpen it just never seems to work out that way they probably do need to get a veteran or two to shore that thing up yeah it's going to be interesting especially with the starting rotation where you look now you've probably got seven guys returning not counting minor leaguers who are going to be in contention for those five spots if you say Jose Urena is definitely going to be there. Chen, who just based on his contract, um, you know, he's making $20 million next year, 22 the year after. And he was great at home. Obviously, the road was another story. And then, you know, Alcantara, Trevor Richards, Pablo Lopez, and then Dan Streely, a veteran, and Caleb Smith will be back from injury. I mean, that's seven guys right there. You have to figure there's going to be, you know, some you got to fix those, um, fit some of those guys in there. Um, the guy I really liked in the second half, um, Trevor Richards, I think, is a guy who – you know, was very impressive with different things. He had a couple of really great stretches. He had one where he went, I think, 18 innings, gave up one run. He got beat up a little bit in uh, September, but he finished strong, pitched 13 innings, scoreless in his last two starts. I think the thing that's really encouraging is that his changeup was legitimately one of the best in all of baseball last year. If you go by swing and miss metrics right now on the, um, the changeup right now, his was the third best in all of baseball behind Luis Castillo and Kyle Hendricks. Um, you know, obviously one of the things is going to be fastball command where he's got to place that and be really accurate with it since he's throwing low 90s on there. And then, you know, developing that third pitch, that's a, been a recurring theme. Don Mattingly said that a few times. He, he really feel he needs to get another pitch. You know, he started to work in the slider a little bit at the end of last year. Um, but I think we have a guy who has a plus pitch like the changeup. And you saw his strikeout rate was pretty high in his last 11 starts he had at least seven strikeouts in six of those games so I think that's going to be you know a key I'd like to see you know a lot carved out for Trevor Richards see what he can do in a full season after he got called up um just before the midway point and then in the bullpen I think a key guy is going to be Teron Guerrero just because he's got a fastball I mean where he can throw I mean it touched 104 at one point this season he's averaging 98.8 on that and when you have someone who can throw with that velocity, and especially, you know, as Andre mentioned, the bullpen struggles recently, I think that's guy, you got to try and carve out that mission, figure out a way to utilize him on there. I mean, he throws the fastball 75% of the time, slider was for 19% of the time, and most of his Ks were coming on the fastball. But I think it's working with him on, you know, getting that consistency a little bit more on the fastball command, which was a little bit, of an issue and then, you know, getting those other pitches. But I think, you know, you need to develop and hopefully get Tehran Guerrero to be a point where he can use that stuff and be that kind of guy in the end, because, you know, Barraclaw was phenomenal in the first half, but, you know, are you going to get that in the, this season was of, you know, being a tired arm. It's hard to say, but I think that's going to be a key guy there in the bullpen too. In the future, if this team is going to be good is Tehran Guerrero. And Joe, it's interesting because the Rays, you know, they went with uh, the opener and it carried them to almost 90 games. We saw the uh, 90 games one. We saw the A's use it 
Uh, the Marlins are actually in a pretty good spot here. I never would have thought that. It's much harder to find starting pitching than it is these hitters, as we saw last winter. You could get a hitter of any kind that could hit 20, 30 home runs on the cheap. So I suppose the Marlins will be in a good spot to be able to do that. It is kind of crazy, though, Joe, to think that you have these young pitchers out there who are pitching so well. April, May, and June, that, that bullpen rewarded those pitchers for their really good starts. And these are young kids. You're probably going to have to shore that thing up going into next year, Joe. You don't want these kids getting deflated, throwing six, seven innings, then the bullpen failing. It was really a tale of two seasons, wasn't it? First half of the season, bullpen was fantastic. Second half of the season, uh, they couldn't reward any of their pitchers. Oh, no question. And, uh, you know, they, I think with a year under their belt for these guys, especially guys that were infused into the system and, and had a pitch at the big league level, I think you're going to just see them kind of spacing it out. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, like Guzman make a quick jump, you know, start off in double A, get to triple A, maybe gets in the big league, maybe helps that bullpen. Uh, Zach Gallen, I see as a reinforcement. Nider, Nick Nider, who's uh, their will be their highest rated pitching prospect as soon as uh, Sandy graduates off like the pipeline and baseball America list and, and probably be the number two prospect in the organization. He'll make that jump from double A to triple A rotation wise. So, you know, I, there's a lot of interesting starting pitching, you know, uh, Caleb Smith at what point will come back with, if he's struggling in any way, is he a bullpen a possibility? You know, it, it's interesting Terry, when you think about this year, they didn't make one um, waiver wire claim all year. Hmm. Not pitching, not hitting, but, but let's say with pitching. I mean, remember a year ago, they're getting like Vance Worley, you know, they're getting guys like that. And they're pitching 10 times in the, you know, pitching 10 times in the big leagues, making 10 big league starts, you know, and, and this, they just have a lot of homegrown guys. So obviously not all are going to hit exactly at the same time frame, And, you know, there'll be a, you know, attrition and, an injury along the way, uh, but there, there's some interesting guys. I, I think Connolly's going to be big next year, Craig. I think, you know, uh, now with a role, you know, knowing he's a lefty and, you know, as a pen, not just you know, a guy who can't repeat delivery and, you know, has some good starts and then, you know, flames out and has to get sent down. So, you know, I, I think that there there's some interesting guys there. And um, I think in terms of depth, keep this in mind, that this roster this year, they had to carry Eliezer the whole year and, and Brett Graves. You know, they don't have to do that. Both of those guys now are part of the Marlins system. They could be options. They, they could start off in AAA where they really needed to be all year. So you, you're hindering your chance to win games this year because you're carrying guys who probably weren't ready to be here, but you, you did that because this was kind of a throwaway year. So, um, and I think Eliezer is a guy that, uh, with growth, I, they, there's some people I talk to think, you know, with his mechanics and just, you know, maturing, he's only 22, that he'll start throwing about 94 next year. If he does, he could be a very interesting rotation piece. So you got a lot of guys that are starters that could help out the pen as well. All right, let's uh, go back to Danny Alvarez here for a minute. Uh, Danny, we saw a number of players struggle uh, this past year for the Marlins. We saw good performances as well. Uh, which player in your mind, Danny, that struggled for this team this year has the best potential to be a bounce-back candidate for this team in 2019? Who's that guy? Well, I, I think that it should be Lewis Brinson, and I think that most of the fans are waiting for Brinson to be, um, I don't know if a superstar, but a really good player, especially because of the Yelich trade and what Yelich is doing right now. I don't, I don't think Brinson will match that, I mean, very soon. But I think it will be Louis um, because, you know, he has the, the tools, the, the conditions, you know, that can run, that can hit, that can hit for power. And especially because in, in the last month, you saw, you know, really good progress uh, for Brinson, you know, compared to the to Louis that we saw on the first half and April, May, were really, really, really bad for him. And, but we saw a, li a little bit of light in that last month. And when he had good stretches in the first half of the season, I mean, he showed, you know, a lot of power and uh, he can, can really make a huge impact on, on this ball club. So I really think Brinson can be that guy. And you're, you're asking me just for one player, but I, I saw like, like two days ago, I saw Magnery Sierra, you know, recording a video in Jupiter. He's working in Jupiter right now, working on, on his bunting. So if he can add that tool, 
to his you know uh, stuff. I mean, he can be really good next year because he will get more infield hits, and if if he gets some base, he can he can run, and so he can steal a lot a lot of bases. So if you, if he gets a walk or an infield hit, you can he can convert convert that into a double because he has has a lot, a lot of speed. So I really see a really good potential in those guys. Andre, that's the, the positive about a bad year is that a lot of these guys are going to go up. I mean, we just know that that's going to happen. You're going to see young players develop at the big league level. Uh, Danny gave two examples of players he thinks potentially could bounce back next year, Brinson and Sierra. Do you want to add to that list? Is there anyone that you think that has the potential, whether it's a veteran or, or a young player, that could have a nice bounce back season for the team next year? Well, I mean, yeah, Danny mentioned two good ones for sure. I mean, we talk a lot about Brinson, but I'm going to go with Jose Ureña because I think, you know, coming off last year, he pitched well, but really had a bad start. This kid was struggling all season long. And then all of a sudden, after the whole Acuna incident happens in Atlanta, something flips in him. And all of a sudden, you know, he starts to pitch a lot better with a lot more, you know, power, a lot more. His secondary pitches start to, to play better. And I think this kid, if, if he basically not just saved his season, but I think he may have saved his career too because the way it's going, I think he's solidified himself into being a guy that they can look at, not just to be in the rotation again, but he's going to be in the conversation to potentially start on opening day like he did this past year, which if we would, if we would have said that in the middle of the season, we wouldn't have said that because of the way, he was, the way things were going. But the September he put together, you know, the stuff that, he's, that, that he can pitch, with, um, the velocity, everything, I think it's a guy who, you know, if he comes back strong and he can carry this over like he was hoping to this year, he could stay in this rotation, you know, for a while. And that's going to help early on because if this, this team is looking to be better than it was this year in terms of wins and losses. I think in addition to fortifying the bullpen, you know, if he is, if he is that guy at the top of the rotation with guys like Trevor Richards, with Sandy, Pablo, Caleb, you know, maybe Straley also there, you know, assuming he's not moved. You know, that's, that's a chance for this team to stay afloat in the, in the early months and, and, you know, while they're still developing. And I think it'll be huge for all of them. So I think, you know, coming off this year, it's impressive to see what he did at the end. And, you know, that's the guy that can definitely bounce back as far as the pitchers go. Yeah, Arania, the, the uh, current organization, deserves credit for uh, sticking with him. And actually, very few things do the previous regime deserve credit for. But a couple of years ago, they were very close to parting ways with Jose Arrhenia, that would have been a disaster. He could have ended up being a 200-inning guy for another team. Yeah. So actually, you've worked out for uh, on both ends. And so you're right. Arrhenia has a chance, I think, again, to start opening day for this team. May end up fronting the rotation uh, in 2019. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, our final question for all of the panelists here on the Swings and Mishes episode with the reporters who cover the team. And this is the question that I think that most people want to know. Everyone is impatient. We want to win now. That's just the world that we live in. So we're going to put everybody on the spot here and ask them to fill in the blank on the final question here on the panel. Uh, the next time that the Marlins will be a competitive team in Major League Baseball will be blank. And I will say this, and by competitive, under the swings and misses determination as to what is competitive is that you can't tell me that losing 95 games or 100 games in a season is being competitive. You, you may compete in some games, but you're not competitive over the course of the whole season. So I'm not going to define it exactly, but you kind of get the gist as to what I'm saying here. Team doesn't have to win a World Series. They don't even have to make the postseason, but they have to be competitive on the field. So let's fill in the blank. The next time the Marlins will be a competitive team in Major League Baseball will be blank. Joe Frazzaro, we'll start with you. Yeah, I kind of talked about it at the beginning. I'm going to say 2020, in two years, I think that's when they're going to be touching the 500 mark. Andre, you, you're up next. Yeah, I'd say my, my if everything breaks the way they go, let's say if they keep JT behind the plate, I, I'd agree with Joe, it's 2020. Conservative side, for sure, 2021, if they have certain setbacks along the way, which tend to happen in baseball, and then you know, to me, the real Muto thing is going to be a big, you know, shift one way or the other in terms of the immediate potential there. Because if they lose him, it's going to be really hard to to replace everything he brings to them. You know, both behind the plate, you know, working with the pitchers, all that kind of thing, all that kind of stuff, and that could set them back a little bit in the in the immediate future. Well, so your opinion: the next time the Marlins will be a competitive team in Major League Baseball will be blank. Fill it in. 
I think it's 2020 um, for a lot of the reasons you've already said. Um, Joe made some good points about kind of the money that's going to start coming in 2020 when you talk about kind of the TV contracts, revenue deals. They're also going to have uh, Martin Prado's contract that's 15 million comes off the books there too. Sterling Castro, 11 million too. They're going to have more flexibility there. I think, you know, if the pitching staff, you know, I think the young guys can continue to evolve. That'll be a key factor. I think that you'll see, you know, you might see some more confidence and more growth, maybe out of a Brinson, kind of Harrison be up there by that point too. Um, another guy I don't think we really talked about too is uh, JT Riddle. Is he a guy that can maybe improve and get better? Um, Mattingly and a lot of people talked about, you know, he didn't have an off season with a shoulder injury. And then he's a guy that's developed, has shown some pop on there. Is that a guy that could be better next year? Too. Um, so I think that 2020 is going to be probably the year when they'll be competitive. And also the JT Real Mucho, whether he's back or not, that's a huge factor. If he's not, then maybe you're pushing it to another year. But I think 2020. Danny, we'll end with you. The next time the Marlins will be a competitive team on the field in Major League Baseball will be when? Which year? Well, I, I agree with, you know, with what Andre and, and Wells say uh, about um, JT. And, and if he stays, I think 2021, I will give them one more year. Especially because I would like to see, you know, these guys like Monty Harrison or Isan Diaz. Um, of course, Sandy continue developing and, and, and those guys. But I think it will be really important um, for them, for, for those guys to have a little bit more experience in the big leagues. I mean, when, when, you, when you see teams like, let's say, um, the Astros in 2015. I mean, they made the playoffs after a, after a long time, but they struggled, you know, at you know, in, in that series and then in 2016. But then after those two years of, of experience in the big leagues for guys like Springer and Correa and, you know, maybe Bregman, I mean, they made a really, really good job in 2017 and they en ended up winning the World Series. Of course, I don't think the Marlins have that talent right now, but I think that what they do have is really good and it's, it will be important to add maybe some free agent um, to the roster in 20, 2021 and after... Um, what Joe mentioned about the TV contract and, you know, the naming rights in, in the ballpark. I think that, you know, adding those years and having more money um, will get them to be a competitive team in 2021. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting question to, to answer and, and try and predict because we don't know. We've seen so many of these, these rebuilds uh, come to fruition. The Braves, the Phillies to a degree, the Astros, the Cubs, and then, of course, on the flip side, it looks like the White Sox may be in for more of this. So, uh, you know, for for my opinion, man, I'm somewhere in between 20 and 21. But I, I think you guys all brought up some really solid points, uh, Real Muto being one of them. Uh, the thing that I look at also as well, all of the promotion and all of the discussion about these kids who they just drafted now. And we know we're going to hear about that again in this upcoming June draft. If this is the direction that they're headed and cultivating young players from this past draft, 2018, man, it is hard to see. Uh, them being on the big league field in 2020 and all of a sudden being a competitive team. But I do know that that is their belief. And they do feel, as Joe said, that they can fast track uh, this build or this rebuild. So potentially could be 2020, but at that worst, yes, 2021, uh, we're going to have to see some major progress, but that tells you something folks and Marlins fans, you got to be patient. This is going to be a uh, road back to success. And that always takes time. I want to thank Joe Fasaro, Andre Fernandez, Wells Dusenberry, and of course Daniel Alvarez for being part of our panel today. Also, thanks to Jeremy Taché for producing this and putting this together. For everyone here on Swings and Mishes, I'm Craig Mish, and we will talk to you again next week.